got together and said, you know, we need to have a program. We need to continue a program in the NHS work. And uh, we had also made some different uh, advances in the uh, x-ray analysis. And, uh, and since then, we've, we've had other advances in, in neurology as well as instrumentation, reading, and so on and so forth. But we just felt like we needed to have a program to be able to preserve and move forward the NHS work. This is Dr. Paul Hamburg of UpperCervicalDocs.com, and here is an interview I did with Dr. Robert Kessinger of Cape Girardeau, Missouri. Dr. Kessinger has been published in several leading chiropractic journals, JMPT, Journal of Vertebral Subluxation Research, Today's Chiropractic, Chiropractic Research Journal. He is a member of the College of the Upper Cervical Diplomate Program, has presented numerous papers at the Vertebral Subluxation Research Conferences at Sherman College of Straight Chiropractic and Upper Cervical Conferences held at Life University. He is the developer of the Knee Chest Upper Cervical Specific Certification Program and founder of KCUCS World Missions and has been on over 20 foreign mission trips. In this interview, we discuss his being a fourth-generation chiropractor, how he came to be the first upper cervical chiropractor in his family, why he started the KCUCS, his many mission trips, and how a lack of staying on top of his atlas correction nearly cost him his life. Dr. Kessinger is a great guy, and I hope you enjoy this interview. Born in Independence, Missouri, and uh, grew up at uh, the town Harry Truman's from, and uh, I grew up in a place called Viburnum, Missouri, which is in the middle of Mark Twain National Forest, and kind of the middle of nowhere. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mark Twain National Forest is huge. Yeah, yeah. It's a, it's a, it was a town of about 500 people, and it was the biggest town within about 30 miles. Uh-huh. And those towns were about two or 3,000 people. So it was, it was a pretty pretty rural area. Yeah. What did your parents do? Uh, my uh, parents are chiropractors. My dad's a chiropractor, and my mom uh, works uh, as office manager in the, in the clinic. Oh, okay. Was she? Uh, does she have a chiropractic uh, degree or? Uh, no, uh, she didn't. She went through. Uh, my dad graduated in 1963 uh, from Cleveland, and um, I was the third child. And she went up all the way to the last year, and then I came. You know, I came along, or I was coming along, and so uh, it just became you know too much of a challenge. So, uh, so basically, she had to uh, uh, forego. Going, uh, completing at that time, but taking care of three kids. And at that time, you know, they didn't have student loans. It was basically they they worked uh, basically uh, forty hour and fifty hour weeks, and also then went to school uh, full time as well. Too, so quite challenging. Yeah. Uh, d- uh, does your dad still practice? Uh, yes, yes, he sure does. He practices in Rolla, Missouri. Uh, is uh, is he an upper cervical chiropractor? Uh, no, I'm the first one. I'm a fourth generation chiropractor. Wow. My great granddad graduated in 1921, and my uh, granddad graduated in 1949. And so, uh, but I'm the first. Uh, I'm the first Kessinger to go into upper cervical. Well, how was that received? Uh, you know what? I have an awesome family, and uh, it was it was good. I think the roughest part was from me uh, to that. It wasn't, but I was I was always accepted. Uh, but at the same time, I don't know that I was accepted because you know how you get on fire with upper cervical and you get a certain mindset in certain ways, and then after a while you kind of uh, grow up and, and uh, yeah, all that kind of starts to settle down. But no, I have an awesome family, and, and just very proud to be it. Well, that's that's really amazing. Four generations, and you're the first upper cervical uh, yeah. chiropractor. What uh, uh, what swayed you? I mean, was there any conflict uh, within yourself coming up uh, to making this decision? You know, that's an excellent question. I basically, even from growing up, I just always had a knowingness. I remember being as young as five or six years old, and having a knowingness that I was going to be a chiropractor. Um, and never really gave it much thought other than just knew I was going to do it. And I was walking through the hallway in my senior year. My counselor grabbed me and said, okay, uh, this is the week where everybody needs to tell us, you know, what are you planning on doing? And uh, so, and then just a second, I said, oh, I'm going to be a chiropractor. You know, it's like I was laying there dormant for so many years. But no, there really wasn't. And uh, when I graduated from 
uh, Logan in 1988, I basically uh, was doing full spine and, uh, you know, a lot of nutrition work, and I was even doing acupuncture at the time. And uh, so, but in uh, early 1990, January of 1990, I heard a tape uh, from a Sigafoos tape. And uh, now I've talked to Dr. Sigafoos, <laughs> Dr. Sigafoos since then, but uh, it was a bootleg copy. And uh, so I just happened to hear this tape that was from one of his philosophy talks. And something on that tape I listened over and over and over, literally. I would listen to that thing three or four, five, six times a day because I was just so uh, just enthralled with it. And for a number of weeks, I was just listening to that. And then I got into, uh, you know, more tapes and stuff like that. But my, my practice at that time, that was in January of 1990, my practice that time literally went from 20 to 30 office visits a week to almost, not quite, but almost 250 office visits a week in about three or four weeks. <laughs> and it was just a crazy, crazy, crazy time. Well, as a, as a natural progression of looking into the philosophy and the principles of chiropractic, uh, I started reading green books, and when I started reading the green books by B.J. Palmer, of course, that was a natural progression. I was like, okay, so I, had, I got to the point, I was like, okay, I want to do this like, like B.J. Palmer was doing, I want to do what they were doing, and so on and so forth, because that's, that's, you know, that's where I was at, that's where I'm at. Did, you, did your parents, or did your dad, or was your grandfather still alive at this point? Yes, uh, yeah, my granddad passed away, uh, I, I believe it was 1999. Uh, it may have been 2000. I think it was 1999, spring of 1999. So, so he was around for you know a good eight years. You know, eight years after that, and uh, my granddad practiced up to the time he, he passed away. And so, but here again, I mean, he was he was uh, very much into it too. I mean, he was um, uh, very accepting of it, and uh, you know, it was we we always maintained a good relationship. So it wasn't you know that wasn't a it didn't become funny at Thanksgiving dinner, that's what you're... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. I, I'm just... Uh, well, I'll tell you what I'm getting at. Um, are you the only sibling that became a chiropractor? Uh, no, no. I have another brother. Uh, my older brother uh, became a chiropractor. Huh. And he currently works uh, uh, in my dad's office. Now, here's what I'm getting at. You've got all of this history... And was there, I mean, was there ever, you know, you said that this idea was kind of lying dormant. So I take that to mean that, uh, you know, you didn't grow up with, son, we're Kessingers, we become chiropractors. <laughs> right? Yes. You know what? I'm, I'm glad you asked that. Um, no, not at all. Uh, as a matter of fact, um, when I came home, on my senior year, when I came home after that meeting with my counselor, it was a funny thing. My counselor, because when I was in school, when I was in high school, my focus was not academics. It was it was uh, uh, sports, hugely in sports, and that's and, uh, and and I would like to say that that was all of it. But quite frankly, at that time, I really I don't think my brain was switched on yet, so, uh, so I wasn't really into much schoolwork. So I went in to talk to my high school counselor, and I, I said, uh, I want to be a chiropractor. And my high school counselor uh, discouraged me. He said, he said, you you really shouldn't do that because I think you'll just basically waste your mom and dad's money trying to do that. And you should look for a vocation where you can use your hands, you know, something like maybe, you know, uh, factory work hmm. or something like that. And so, but when he said that, that didn't really affect me. Because I already had, it was so deep ingrained in me, I just thought, hmm, that's interesting you say something like that. Yeah. And I didn't even, I just, it, it wasn't like, and I know sometimes, unfortunately, people can hear stuff like that, and it just, it, it sets them in a the wrong motion. Mm -hmm. uh, but, it, but I was so resolved at what I was doing, not because mentally I had this idea that, you know, for years and years i got to do this, i got to do this, but it was just so deep inside that it was just a natural progression. Uh, so, but uh, no, we never had uh, that. I never had that uh, growing up. I'm thankful for. Uh, I came to, I came to the revelation that I was to be a chiropractor, uh, pretty much from a very natural circumstance. It was, it was not a, hey, this is what we do, and and so, <laughs> you know, quite frankly, I saw my my parents. We grew up in a small town. I saw them. They had an office home combination, and I saw, uh, you know, the respect level that they had in the town. And I saw, you know, what kind of life they had, and I saw by their example who they were. 
and as that, I think I just wanted to emulate that. And, uh, of course, naturally, I, I believe that the Lord called me to do it anyway. So, uh, you know, it was, but I saw just from a very natural perspective, I saw uh, something good in my parents as I was as I was growing up. And But it was never a, a thing where they were like, okay, you've got to, you've got to do this and please don't disappoint us. It was, it was not that. And, you know, it's kind of funny because now they tell me they were elated when I came home and said I wanted to be a chiropractor. <laughs> but believe it or not, when I was a senior, I came home and said, you know, I went to the counselor today, and I told him I was a chiropractor, and it was more like, uh, okay, well, that's nice. Uh, you know, it wasn't uh, like, okay, let's get the you know, parade going and the, and the symbols and the claims and all that, you know. <laughs> well, I, I think that they just didn't, they, I think they didn't want to manipulate the situation. I don't think, I think they wanted me to come to the free choice of, of understanding that's who I, or not who I was supposed to be, but, but what I was called to do. Hmm. Well, that's just what I find amazing is that, uh, you know, you came about this purely through your own circumstances. Nothing, it sounds like, was, I mean, except for the fact that, you know, you grew up in a chiropractic household that um, uh, that you basically just did what made sense to you. And that's what's amazing. <laughs> yeah, you know, it, it sounds funny when you, when you say it that way, but that's pretty much how, how that happened. Yeah. Well, okay. So, reading the green books and uh, and hearing uh, Sigafoos, uh, this is all what uh, basically geared you towards uh, upper cervical. But and, and you had mentioned how your practice grew in that three to four weeks. Was it in that three to four weeks that you transitioned your practice into an upper cervical practice? No, that's an interesting point. Um, you know, and and I said that you know I heard the Sigafoos tape tapes and and so forth, it really, what all that was, and I really, and it took me, I didn't understand this for a while, but what it really was, the kernel was, was there was something inside of me that, that was, was wrapped up in the destiny, I believe, that I was supposed to do that, and when I, when I heard uh, that message for some way, it just resonated and, and basically almost like opened up, opened up the balloon, and so... But that was just for, you know, because Sigfus uh, really, his, his were not, even though I believe he does talk about upper cervical, these were not really necessary upper cervical oriented type uh, presentations. But he uh, suggested, hey, go read the Green Books. And when you read the Green Books, of course, BJ, particularly after, or volume 18 after, you know, you get a real flavor of the upper, you know, the upper cervical there. But uh, what I had done is that three or four weeks, I was still doing full spine. And I grew like crazy, and we, you know, maintained that for, for for that period of time for about eight to nine months. And uh, I have to say that I was in this mode of, you know, believing, 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 believing. You know how that happens. And I was really not seeing anything happen. But but more than that, I didn't feel like I had an objective way of knowing that uh, when to start and when to stop, and, and if I'd done it properly, or, or I just didn't have the means of knowing. I know there's different ways and different techniques, and I'm not doubting on any of those, uh, but just for my own sake, I didn't feel like I had an objective measure to know uh, that I had really done the job or not. And so about November, I went out to DE in uh, Dynamic Central down in Atlanta, Georgia, and um, uh, I saw Dr. Kale down there and uh, a few others, and then I got introduced to Dr. Kale, and I talked to him on the phone, uh, you know, a little bit. Then I basically started his seminar series that January 1991. So about a year after I'd really gotten turned on to the message of chiropractic, I, uh, then I started uh, going through you know uh, formal training with Dr. Kale and so forth. So. And uh, what year was that? That was 1991. 91. 1991. January 12, 1991. I remember because it was my mother's birthday. <laughs> uh oh, I've told something maybe. I <laughs> I mean, only, I guess only if she minds. <laughs> Maybe everybody will send her a card now. There you go. Man. <laughs> well, um, when did you uh, when did you start teaching the technique? Well, um, I started in probably later 1992. I started teaching a little bit with Dr. Kale's uh, program, and 90 about half midway through the 93. Uh, year 94, 95, I was the main instructor there. And then, uh, then 90, I was still involved in the program 96, 97. 
And then uh, we began the KTCF program uh, November uh, 2001. We did our first uh, official seminar in Atlanta. Now, before then, we actually had people coming uh, to Cape Girardeau for the weekend. We'd have students. Uh, it was kind of funny because we'd have uh, people coming over to our house. And we had about 20 people laying all over the place, uh, coming in Friday nights, and we'd stay up all night and, and go through our studies and so forth. We did three or four of those meetings, but the first official one really started uh, November of uh, 2001. Now, uh, what does that stand for, KCCCS? Uh, KCUCF stands for Nietzsche Upper Cervical Specific. Okay. And what uh, what are the reasons for it beginning versus the kale technique? Well, we began the KCCS uh, in the... Um, in the November uh, period of time, Dr. Kale had passed away in um, July 2001, mm -hmm. July 2nd, 2001. And uh, at that time, we just felt that there was a need, not just myself, but there was other doctors that were with me, uh, that uh, Dr. Dalian and Dr. Mike Anderson primarily that were with me, that, that um we got together and said, you know, we need to have a program. We need to continue a program in the NHS work. And uh, we had also made some different uh, advances in the uh, x-ray analysis. And, uh, and since then, we've, we've had other advances in, in neurology as well as instrumentation, reading, and so on and so forth. But we just felt like we needed to have a program to be able to preserve and move forward the NHS work. Tell us about uh, the uh, World Missions Program. Okay. Um, well, we first started doing World Missions uh, basically following Dr. Cahill around the world, different places. And uh, we started the, the KCCS World Missions. Is really the KCCS certification program, NHS Episodical Specific, is a, is a big umbrella. And underneath that umbrella is the KCCS World Missions. The World Missions basically... Uh, is we, we began that in, uh, we did our first mission, I believe, in 2003, May of 2003 to Jamaica. And since then, we've done probably about uh, 10 or 12 missions to different places, such as uh, Bulgaria, um, uh, I can't even think of where we Ghana, uh, India, uh, and, and different places, uh, Guatemala, different places. And so the origin of that was basically it's a Christian uh, it's a Christian ministry. Now we don't like the doctors that go with us. Uh, they you know you don't have to be a Christian to go with us. Mm -hmm. uh, but because we invite all the upper circle doctors to come along with us, mm -hmm. of course. Um, but um, when we go to the different countries, we usually link up, or we do get link up with churches, or link up with other groups um, such as that in the in the foreign countries that. They will usually serve as our host. Do any of the doctors, yourself or any of the others, uh, take on a formal evangelical role on these missions, or is it purely geared towards subluxation correction? Yeah, our primary focus is to do the episodical care. Mm -hmm. um, and so, no, we're not really doing that. Uh, however, you know, from time to time when we go to different places, not all the places, but a lot of places that we go, uh, the church will ask somebody from the group to do a message on a Sunday morning or, or a Wednesday evening or something like that. Um, but the primary focus of the trip is to uh, do the upper cervical, uh, is to do the upper cervical care. Now, how do you uh, perform the uh, upper cervical care without the use of x-rays or anything like that? Well, what we do is, is we take instruments there. We take portable instruments. It's much like the NCM. We have something called the uh, medulometer that measures temperature. And so what we do is as a person gets checked, we, we have them, uh, we have writers there, which are our hosts will provide helpers. <coughs> Excuse me. And they, they will provide helpers. And those helpers will write out uh, what, we, what our findings are. We'll do a, a scan with the instrument and determine what their brake reading is, whether it's to the left or the right or whatever it is. We do the reading right up underneath the occipital shelf. Um, we don't do full uh, cervical spine readings because we're not reading pattern, we're just reading brakes. So we're looking at the brake at the occipital shelf, but that's the cervical area. And uh, then that's recorded. 
and then we'll do a postural analysis. Our postural analysis will consist of uh, determining um, if we're in a very basic rudimentary way, uh, are we looking at a uh, right laterality, left laterality, we're looking at atlas axis, what are we looking at? And then we're going to make the adjustment, and all this is recorded. And then the person will come back the next day with their paper. And amazingly, when you get on the, this is just, this blows me away, but in the, in the mission field or on the mission field, we will ask people, come back tomorrow and bring your paper, and they all, and I would say all, but nearly every one of them will bring back their paper. And they bring back their paper, then we'll take another reading on the next day. And on the next day, we'll be able to determine whether they have cleared out or whether we need to, uh, or we need to make further correction or we need to do. And most usually, and I would say, we don't know the percentages, but I would say uh, 90% of the time, we are not going back and recorrecting. Huh. So, uh, so we use that. Now, no, it is not perfect because we don't have x-rays, but uh-huh. it's, it's a matter of really standard of care. You know, because when you're in that situation, you know, standard of care really is determined by what you have available, what you're, you know, a, what you have at your disposal. So, so at that level, uh, we we do our best to have some type of quality assurance that we know that people are clearing out. And, and I know a lot of people go on mission trips and they go down there. And, and I I really don't want to speak harshly about anybody in this. Um, and that's not my intention. But what what we see happening and what we see that we disagree with that I don't believe should happen is going down on the mission field and basically, you know, just jerking people's necks and, and uh, you know, and hearing a crack and, and thinking that you've done something. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I really think that that, that can present, uh, that can present problems. I, I know certainly people can do better with that, but, but uh, you know, if you have no way of, of, of knowing if you made this adjustment, if it's what it's done or however. So that's the reason why we have people come back so we can recheck them to make sure or to at least uh, give us the best ability to see if we've cleared them out or, or what's happened. Mm-hmm. And we also, you know, we also with that, we will uh, have uh, some level of um, dialogue with them. We'll ask them, um, and we don't do this in our office, but since we're there and we're just going to see them for a few days, after the adjustment the next day, we'll often ask them, uh, you feeling better? You feeling worse? Mm-hmm. And if they're feeling worse, that doesn't mean they need to be readjusted. But that puts them over in another line where we're going to really sit there and evaluate them and watch them very closely. Mm-hmm. But, you know, we, we want to make sure we're doing our best work. Right. Well, and that's very similar to the way uh, um, when I uh, interviewed Dr. Drury, he said that uh, that's uh, how they uh, would um, evaluate when he went with Dr. Kale on his mission trips that uh, it was a postural and um, uh, I, I find that fascinating because yeah, I uh, come from a Grostic background and uh, we don't have anything like that uh, in Grostic where you take a postural analysis to uh, determine how you're going to make a correction. In fact, we're so uh, used to numbers, I don't know how we could. <laughs> Well, you know, here's an interesting thing. We have had, we have uh, upper circle doctors from all stripes that come on the, the mission field. With us. We've had, uh, we, we've actually had a NUCA doctor come and do some form of analysis and, and adjust patients. Hmm. But we've also had people come down and do AO or different things. And uh, they may want to come down and for a week they do need chest. Mm-hmm. And we're not trying to convert anybody to do anything because we really, I, I firmly believe that people are called to this specific work and, and that's where they need to, to be and we're not really trying to pull anybody in any direction. But sometimes they will come down and just want to enjoy having a week, you know, serving people and it's, it's, it's pretty neat. Yeah. Well, now tell me, uh, how do you determine uh, whether an adjustment needs to be given to the atlas or the axis? Is it just where the instrument breaks? Uh, no, we don't. We don't use that. Um, we use the adage that uh, most of your, you know, this is, people have varying opinions about this, but it's, but it's my opinion that uh, the atlas uh, is going to be the one that we're going to be correcting. Most of the time, and when I say most of the time, I'm in the 90 percentile, mm-hmm. uh, maybe uh, high 80s, but I would say in the 90 percentile percentile that we're going to be adjusting atlas. So on our postural analysis, we have we have different methods of looking at it, 
but we're looking for the atlas. And the reason why we're doing that, we're doing that off a lot of law percentages. Now, sometimes you just cannot get an atlas reading, the atlas uh, uh, listing from a posture. So in that case, we go, uh, we would adjust the axis. But that doesn't happen that often. So, uh, but the break readings just tell us basically is there interference going on there? Is there um, is there compromise to how the brainstem's functioning? That's basically what the instrument tells us. But it really, um, unfortunately, because there's too many variables involved in it, to really tell us is this atlas or active. Okay. Well, uh, tell us about some of your uh, published articles. Um, well, uh, we've had some articles. We had a few articles published in JMPT, and we've had some articles published in the JVSR. And, uh, and of course, it was the old, uh, uh, oh, I've, I've drawn a blank on it, but it was the one that produced out of Life College there in Life University. Right, so, yes. I can't remember the name of it either. Oh, <laughs> well, boy, I'm very sorry. But uh, <laughs> anyway, uh, yeah, um, I think it's a very worthy pursuit. I think it's great to do that. Most of the stuff we've done has been either case studies or have been uh, basic case reviews or, you know, consecutive studies where, where you have a certain number of people come in over a period of time. But we've also done some uh, uh, things that we presented at conferences that have not been published yet. We, like, we have an outstanding study that was, was done on bone mineral density. And what we found was uh, we took a bone mineral density test. We actually bought a unit and brought it in the, in the clinic here. And uh, so we would, before we adjusted a patient, we would uh, check their bone mineral density. And then four weeks after the first adjustment, we would check it again. And then six months, we'd check it, and one year, we'd check it. And what we found was after four weeks, after four weeks, there was no change. After six months, uh, there was statistically significant changes in the bone mineral density. And those statistically significant changes were even greater in the population of 65 and older. And then in one year, uh, they, were, they held the same, about the same as they did six months. Now, these patients were not counseled on diet. They were not uh, counseled on exercise. Uh, they, this was basically uh, just doing upper cervical work. We didn't have any, you know, of course, people change their lifestyle on different things. And, you know, people had different explanations uh, and feedback we had. Like, for instance, maybe people felt better, so they got out and were more active. And that, that could be. But our theory that we had that we proposed forward was that something was happening when, when the upper cervical area was getting clear that it was causing uh, or it was allowing a better function to happen than hypothalamus. And that was uh, that, that uh, could be um, influencing a growth hormone level because growth hormone has a lot to do with, with bone mineral density. Hmm. And so uh, we would love to be able to uh, test that further because... If the epicervical correction, it's being subluxated, let's put it that way, in the epicervical region, causes your body to produce uh, less growth hormone, this is major, major, major stuff because this is totally right into the anti-aging revolution. This is right into the disease process and all the things. And if we can show that through the correction of the epicervical subluxation that these growth hormone levels are regulating into a more normal fashion as they should, I mean, this is, this is major as I said, this major stuff. There's been a lot of, there's been other stuff that we have not published that we've actually, well, uh, published in a, in a journal. We've actually published it in the form of uh, presenting at conferences and so forth like that. Uh-huh. The, uh, the article that you were just talking about on the uh, bone density? Yes. Um, where was that one published? Uh, that was uh, presented at, uh, I believe, the Substation Conference, the National Substation Conference. And I would have to give the specific details. And if anybody wants information on that to listen to this interview, they're welcome to get a hold of me, and I'll see if I can if I can pull that up for them. Okay. I just, I just don't have. You know, I'm just talking about that off the cuff, and I don't. Sure. No. What I, what I was going to ask you is, uh, what kind of uh, professional feedback did you get from that study? Uh, there was a resounding uh, silence. <laughs> but you know, to be fair. I don't. I don't think that it was. I don't think it really got to a place where it could have gotten traction. Uh, it really needs to be. It really needs to be written up and put in. Put into a journal, submitted yeah. to a journal where people can prove and look at it. Because basically, 
when you present at a conference, that doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to get traction. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, what is your impression of the uh, unification of upper cervical over the last few years? This is the end of part one. Please go to part two. Here is a bonus tip for all upper cervical doctors. How many times have you wished that you could send your patients an upper cervical patient newsletter, but you just don't have the time to make one yourself? Maybe you've looked at newsletter services and have been disappointed that they were very general and could possibly confuse your patients with a message that isn't congruent with your philosophy. Well, now you have a choice. I provide a service to upper cervical chiropractors where I'll write an upper cervical patient newsletter for you. I'll personalize it to you and your practice, and I'll even process and mail the whole thing for you if that's what you want. Find out more information by going to my website, www.uppercervicaldocs.com. Scroll down to the bottom and click on the link that says Upper Cervical Patient Newsletter. You know, it's been nothing short of phenomenal. Um, I don't know how much that you, I guess you've been around that quite a bit, haven't you? Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's been quite an astounding, uh, awesome thing to witness. Even uh, 15 years ago, uh, there was just vitriol <laughs> palpable uh, between the different groups, not all the groups, but, but certainly some of the groups. And I can see that a new generation has come in and a new generation of leadership is coming in. And that new generation really is the generation of unification. And that right there is probably going to be the most significant thing that happens in the upper cervical community uh, for the years to come. Uh, we're going to be able to look back at this time that we're living in right now and be able to look at that and say, yep, that's exactly when we began to take off. Because when we, when we strike a level of unity and start working together um, and putting things together, things can be created that just simply would not happen if we were, you know, seven different islands out there, seven separate islands. And uh, so I just think it's a tremendous thing. There's been many, many, many things that have been, uh, uh, have been the catalyst of this. Not one thing has done it, but many things have, have come together to make all this happen. And I'm just, I'm, I personally am very appreciative of it. And, you know, it's really amazing to me how much I've learned from the other episodical leaders and every other episodical groups, um, you know, even to apply to our own work. I mean, it's just, it's just phenomenal. Yeah. Uh, I love it. Can I ask you a question? It's going to sound like I'm putting you on the spot, but I'm not. I'm, I want, um, you know, based on uh, you know what we just talked about your uh, your mission work, you you facilitate uh, teleconferences uh, periodically throughout the year, uh, where um, upper circle doctors will talk about what's going on and. Last couple of times, it's been about uh, X-ray and uh, efficacy studies and doom of our ability to uh, take diagnostic X-rays. It seems, but I wonder, based on you know what you know you're capable of doing with the knee chest technique, with the uh, um, with the postural analysis and uh, and uh, you know determining um, atlas subluxation based on the the, the break in the um, what is it called the neuro uh, yeah the NCM or the medullometer yes does does the taking away of X-rays from us does that bother you as far as your ability to practice or is it more of a standard of care thing that you know. Um, this is just like one step towards something else. What What is your position on that personally? Yeah, I, you know, I'm, I'm really glad. Uh, on the contrary, that doesn't put me on the spot. I'm really glad to answer this question. Number one, we do not do posture analysis in our office in the United States. We rely solely on x-ray. Mm-hmm. We have to have x-ray to be able to provide a level of care that's acceptable and what we've come to know is, uh, yeah, standard of care in the United States. Uh, but when we're looking at a third world country that, you know, some of them don't even have clean drinking water and their poverty is so rampant, uh, it's not practical to have an x-ray unit in there. But we believe through a postural analysis, we can have a positive influence on what's going on there. But we we cannot provide, you can't, you know, it's apples and oranges to say who's going to get what kind of care. In other words, if you're seeing somebody in uh, the poorest regions, of Guatemala, which we've been there, and there's some very poor regions there. Uh, 
uh, it's not practical to be able to have an X-ray unit down there to, to, to do that kind of work to help those people. The question is there is, are we benefiting those people? Now, from practical experience, uh, I can say that, yes, it is apparent that we are helping those people. But at the same time, there's no way that you could provide um, the kind of care that you're expected to, to deliver in the United States without the use of x-rays. Just for this thing, just for the litigious society that we have, mm-hmm. I've had patients come in that I've uh, x-rayed and found that they had uh, a missing posterior arch mm-hmm. or they had uh, different things that would cause me to adjust them or take care of them differently because I saw the x-ray. Now, when we get into the specifics of, of doing our work, <clears throat> and especially now you can, uh, I'm sure you could uh, go with this as far as with the grossy work, our, our x-ray analysis is very specific. And when we adjust somebody, we know pretty much where that atlas is sitting, and we know what we need to do to make a correction. We're on the mission field. We don't have that advantage. We are going from uh, less, we're doing less specific work in the mission field. So the really question is, is, are, is what we're doing on the mission field, is it beneficial for the people that are there? Because it's not the same level of care that we would be expected to provide in the United States. So, um, yeah, that's, I, I think that that's really the question. It's a standard of care issue, though. Okay. And standard of care really is relative to what you would be expected to be able to prefer, perform given the circumstances that you're in. Right. So we must have x-ray in the United States to be able to maintain the level that we're expected to, to uh, achieve. Yeah. Okay. And, and you know, and, and now, see, now you've got me started. <laughs> no, keep like going. You see, like the Dick Holt study uh-huh. and the other studies that are coming down the pike. Uh, in the Dick Holt study, of course, you know, um, with, where would it be if he was not able to do the x-ray analysis he did? Mm-hmm. Um, and there's, a, there's more studies coming down the road that are showing uh, that if we do x-ray, we do better. I think uh, Bo uh, uh, Rochester has done a phenomenal uh, study that's going to get, I think, hopefully a lot of traction. And where he found, and, and I'm saying this off memory, but he found that if people got less than a 30% correction, uh, they did not do as well symptomatically than the people who got better than a 30% correction. And I might have my numbers wrong, and I apologize. But the point being is, is that they found through, he found through x-ray analysis that pre-post, if you did a post-x-ray on somebody, and they did better on the misalignment correction, that they actually fared better, better clinically hmm. than those who got less of a correction. And this right here is powerful. So yeah. very appreciative for, for Dr. Bo's work. How do you manage your patients? Do you recommend uh, frequent uh, checkups for uh, uh, atlas subluxation, or do you just put your patients on PRN after a particular point? We generally keep them on a scheduled on a scheduled program. But as with many upper cervical uh, clinics, you know you you have traveling patients, and so your traveling patients are going to be on a less frequent schedule. Um, but I would say that. Um, uh, we have uh, patients through the years who just drop in, of course. I think that has to live with everybody. But in the main, uh, we try to keep people try to keep people scheduled on some kind of maintenance program. Mm-hmm. How important is uh, patient education to your practice? Oh, boy. Uh, I would say in the upper cervical practice, I can speak for ours specifically, but I would say in general in the upper cervical practice, we have to become great educators. And the reason why is because we are really not uh, moving in the vein of treatment type uh, chiropractic, or we're not in the vein of just trying to get rid of symptoms, but we're in the vein of correcting this most vital upper cervical area. And so we have to be able to educate people to the point so that they understand why it's important that their head is balanced and why the body's balanced and why the head's sitting over in the upper cervical spine in the proper place and why there's no pressure on the brain stem. And it's, it's just vital to, to what we do because, you know, and you know how this happens, a lot of times patients will experience symptoms because they're going through a healing process. And if they don't understand from the get-go why you're doing what you're doing, then it doesn't make sense with them. And so it, it's harder for them to stick, stick with you. But we have patients who will come in. I had an RN come in a little bit ago that... Uh, you know, I checked her and I said, well, your, your uh, balance today looks perfect. She said, oh, that's great. I've got a, 
I've got a really bad headache, and I was hoping I didn't need an adjustment. I'm sure I can go home and rest, and it'll be fine. Mm-hmm. Now, I tell that story, and that, that doesn't, I mean, you know, of course, you, you've got people at all different levels of understanding. But I tell that story because it's very important that people understand that it really isn't about symptoms. It's about being clear or not clear. Because if you're really clear, the symptoms will take care of themselves. But more importantly, the body's able to uh, get to a more healthy position, better able to adapt to the environment and grow stronger and stronger. And you build that accumulative constructive survival value that B.J. BJ Palmer talks about. And so, yeah, education really is the central issue, I believe. And I believe they even asked uh, B.J. Palmer, they said, in the book Fight the Climate, said, uh, what is the most important job of the contractor? And his response was uh, two things. He said, first, we must teach them the principle, and second, we must uh, deliver it. Mm-hmm. So. In what ways do you educate your patients? Well, uh, I tell you what, Daniel Clark has some great stuff. We, we use some Daniel Clark stuff. Um, we also do, uh, uh, on, a, uh, on the first 12 visits that somebody comes in, We've designed a program so that they they read a uh, they read a pamphlet on each visit. Like after their first adjustment, each visit after that for 12 visits, they will read pamphlets, and it's about a five minute, eight minute read. And then as they come through, we can ask them questions about it or whatever. And it's things like, uh, um, uh, what is retracing? Uh, what is uh, how did how did head neck misalignment begin? Uh, is it true? that the symptoms I have could be from an accident years ago. Uh, and, and we also have things about uh, different uh, drugs or different things. And it's all designed to bring them to a systematic way of education, but we also do weekly classes. Uh, where we have people come in after they've uh, started a program, and we'll do health, health workshops with them. Mm-hmm. And where we basically go to the principal in an overarching uh, way so that kind of give them big picture type stuff. Yeah. But education, 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 that really is the key to our success because, you know, the thing about it is is we're really looking for people to come out of this place of being in prison and thinking that they have to just settle for living a life of just taking drugs and just getting rid of pain and doing this and that. But we want to get them to a place of understanding that really their body is designed to heal and it will as long as there's no interference and giving everything else is proper. And so uh, people are so ingrained into thinking other directions that it is absolutely imperative that we get in there and do that. And I really think it's our job. I think it's our calling. It's not just about us clearing the epistocal spine, but I think it's our calling to be able to teach people better ways to live and give them better ideas as far as living naturally from above down inside out. What has been your biggest disappointment in your chiropractic career, and what do you think you would have done differently? Uh, wow, that's a tough question. <laughs> that is that is really a tough question. Um, I, my mind doesn't generally work in that that direction, but I will say I will say this: about um, two years ago, um, I would say uh, about two and a half years ago. Uh, I got sick, and what happened was, is I had been uh, first about three and a half years ago, rolled the clock back about three and a half years ago, I was in a car accident, and uh, at that time, I was having enough, I had an episode doctor working in my clinic, and he was transitioning, transitioning out, so I didn't have uh, constant care after I got uh, in a car accident, and then about six months after that, which is about three years ago, I was working with the, with the youth group. And uh, we were playing football, and I was quarterback, and he was passer, was quarterback on the other team. And I was going back to make a pass, and this girl that was just, a, she's a great girl, but pretty aggressive, and she had to <laughs> over to Iraq, and, and uh, <laughs> took a couple years over there, I think. But anyway, she came in, and we were playing, playing touch, but she came in and, and, uh, and pushed me right at the wrong time when I was backing up, and I landed flat over on the back of my head and my shoulders. So uh-huh. I absolutely saw stars and knocked me out. So, but anyway, in that time, after that, I did not have consistent episodal care, which gets me to the, to the lesson. Um, all episodal doctors listening to this, make sure you have consistent episodal care because just because we're getting people clear doesn't mean that we're clear, so we have to take care of ourselves. So anyway, that was just my plug. But anyway, um, so then about uh, uh, three or four months after that, I woke up one morning, and I couldn't, 
couldn't hardly walk. And I, as a matter of fact, I couldn't walk because my hip hurt so bad. And uh, I didn't think much about it. I thought, wow, that's, that's right. And I didn't, didn't do anything. A few months later after that, I went to a mission trip to Bulgaria. Got back from Bulgaria. I started running a high fever. Uh, and I was keeping the fever all day long. And then that went on for about two weeks, and I kept on thinking, just like the rest of us upper social doctors think, um, surely tomorrow this will go away. <laughs> and so one night I started to go to bed, and when I got, started to get in my bed, I looked down, and my ankles were swollen up the size of grapefruit. Huh. Well, just kind of knowing a little bit about that, I, when your ankles swell, it really only means two things. If you, normal swelling. If you have swelling like that, it can only mean two things. It's either a heart problem or it's a kidney problem. Mm-hmm. And so I really didn't think it was a heart problem, so I was thinking, my goodness, something's going on here. So the next day I got up and I got a, got a blood test. And I went to my dad's, went to my dad's clinic, which he does, he's a, what's called a chiropractic internist, and ADAPCIA, D-A-B-C-I, they do all kinds of blood work and all kinds of uh, uh, internal stuff. But anyway, uh, I got checked, and, or I got my, my blood checked, and uh, things were things had gone quite south. As a matter of fact, um, one of the things that happened that was in uh, May or June of 2007. And so by the end of June, early July, my calcium levels kept on raising up, and other things were going way haywire and out of whack too. Uh, they say that if your calcium level is at 11, it's considered to be severely morbid. My calcium level at that time had gone up to uh, 11.3, so it was pretty, pretty serious stuff. We didn't have any idea what was going on just because we couldn't, we couldn't figure it out. We were, you know, I was, I wasn't going to, to medical doctors. I was in my dad's clinic, and we were running different tests and just trying to figure out what was going on. Uh, what had happened was, uh, we suspect that when I was in Guatemala about a year and a half before then. I was drinking tea in a village, and I suspected that the tea was with purified water. I thought it was with regular water, but I don't think it was. And I was drinking tea all week because we did a we did some samples, and we found that I had something called an Acromobacter, which is a bacteria that is found in uh, can be found in third world drinking water. And evidently, this thing had just flipped my immune system on its head. Well. Um, uh, I think that if I hadn't had those accidents and I'd been running clear through that period of time, I don't think that would have happened. And so, but just because we, as I said, just because we work on people and we get other people clear doesn't mean that we're clear as a result. It doesn't transfer that way. We have to go through the process of getting checked ourselves. And I, I certainly I do encourage everybody, everybody to go out and make sure that you're staying consistently checked because you know what? None of us are immune to, to having problems. And uh, we have to make sure we're running clear so we have the best ability to fight these things. So anyway, uh, in middle July, uh, I got adjusted. And when I got adjusted, my calcium levels went from 11.3 down to about 10.5, which came to a more acceptable level. And then a couple, about three weeks after that, I started developing horrendous, horrendous pain in my back and I uh, couldn't move my neck. But what was happening is my spinal cord had, had completely swollen to where it was encapsulating the whole spinal canal space from my occiput all the way down to about T1 hmm. and just causing tremendous, tremendous pain. I couldn't, I wasn't sleeping over an hour, hour and a half a night because <clears throat> the pain was just too great. And if I, once I laid down, I'd get in one position and get up. It was just, it was just, uh, it was very horrifying. So anyway, um, at the time, and I know some upper soldier doctors probably won't enjoy hearing this, but as as the disclosure goes, when I was in my uh, dad's clinic, I was doing what's called IV vitamins. And what that was is they were interventionally putting vitamin C, high, high dosages of vitamin C, vitamin B, and so forth, in my system. And quite frankly, that sustained me and kept me alive. And so, but it, I still wasn't getting over it. At the end of August, at the end of August, Dr. Mike Anderson drove up from uh, drove up from Atlanta, Georgia, up to Rolla, which is about a 10-hour drive, and uh, came up and checked me. And uh, I think it was August 28th, something like that, in, in that area. And I was really at my worst that time. At that time, my calcium levels had gone up to 11.6, and everything else was going haywire. And it really, literally looked like I didn't have but just maybe a few weeks 
I mean, it was really that bad. Hmm. And so um, he came up, and I, and I also, because my spinal cord had, had done what I was doing, I was going paralyzed. Uh, my legs weren't working. My body, my full body was, was, was numb. My legs were working to some degree, but I had no coordination with them. And um, I just various, you know, various things were, were happening that uh, just, you know, every day I just seemed like, oh, my goodness, there goes that, there goes that. So anyway, after he adjusted me, though, uh, things began to turn around. And that really was the turnaround. That was the turning point to me getting back on track. The next week, my calcium levels went down, I think. Uh, uh, it might have even been 9.8 or something like that. It came down after I'd gotten that adjustment. The next week, my calcium levels started to come down. Uh, my blood value started coming down to the more normal range. And so that upper cervical adjustment was very significant in, in turning things around. Now, uh, I guess the disappointment, that it wasn't really a disappointment, but it was kind of a shocker because I've always been a healthy person, and I never really thought of myself as being that way. But at the same time, uh, what would I do about it? And that's the really reason why I told that story, was because I think it's imperative for us upper cervical doctors and our families to make sure we're keeping checked and make sure we're staying clear and doing things that we need to do to, 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 to be healthy, you know, getting rest, uh, making sure we're, you know, trying to keep our stress at a minimum, getting our sleep, uh, eating good foods, and doing, doing what we need to do to stay, to stay healthy because it's vital. We have to take care of ourselves. That's an amazing story. Well, I appreciate you saying that. It was, it was, it was quite the, it was quite wild. It's quite a wild ride uh, living through it. Uh, it was, you know, and I, and I know that, uh, of course, I, I stopped. Uh, I was out of practice for completely out of practice for six months, and then I saw patients one day a week for about nine months. But, but I wasn't even, you know, like I, I may go two or three weeks where I didn't even come in. So, really, practically, I was out of the office for over a year. And so, um, yeah, and that was that was, you know, many, many, many life lessons learned, you know, through that process. And um, the one thing I just I just so appreciate I so appreciate what my parents did because I basically I was living in their house and, and uh, living in their clinic and uh, basically that <clears throat> gave me the substance I needed to survive. Mm. And uh, but the upper cervical adjustment was very pivotal, uh, very pivotal in my recovery. And I, I remember it so. <clears throat> if you if you, do you have time for me to share this a little bit more? Oh, absolutely. Well, as I was, um, one thing that I, one thing that had happened was that um, uh, I uh, was doing this test called she, uh, Heal the Shin Test, Heal the Shin Test, and uh, it, it it has to do with cerebellar function. So if you take your heel of your left your left heel and run it down the shin of your right leg, you should be able to run it from your knee all the way down to your big toe. Just mm -hmm. a neurological test. And so anyway, I couldn't do that at all because I had so much swelling up in my cord, but I also had swelling up in the cerebellum. And so when I do that, my, my leg just flops like a fish. I could move my leg, but I had no coordination with it. So Mike Anderson had adjusted me. And on the knee chest table, when you get adjusted like that, and you adjust somebody that's paralyzed, if you don't have somebody holding their hips, they will just go flat to the floor, and their, their knees will split, and they'll just go straight down. And that's exactly what happened. And I remember he, he adjusted me, and he just, you know, he picked me up, and I, I was laying in bed rested. And it was so, so much pain laying on my back because of the, because of the spinal cord um, swelling. But I wanted to lay on my back because I wanted that adjustment to hold. I knew that that was my thing I had to, I had to have. Mm. And so about 40 minutes went by. <clears throat> 40 minutes went by. And they were trying to get me down to the... Uh, down to the MRI place to get a uh, to get a uh, another scan to see what was going on because they thought that they needed to do the die and they were, we were going back and forth debating whether we we're going to do that or not. So anyway, they came in. My dad came in and I was laying back in their bedroom after I'd gotten adjusted. And he came back and said, "Okay, they've got that. We've got to, We need to go down there." And I was like, "Man, I, I said because for the first time in about four weeks." I had about a two-minute break of pain. I had no pain for about two minutes after laying there. Mm. I was like, no, i got to stay here. This adjustment's got to hold. And so he said, he said, okay, well, let's try that heel the shin test and see how you're doing. And you would not, I mean, you'll believe it because I'm telling you, but uh, I was able to do that almost perfectly. Mm. And I couldn't do that at all before I got adjusted. 
uh, with that upper adjustment. Hmm. But what happened is immediately when I got adjusted, that swelling began coming off of my cerebellum and started coming off the cord. Hmm. And so we could see that things were already happening. At that point, my dad was like, my dad was like, wow, because <laughs> he saw what had happened. And it's really funny because I hang out with my dad and go different, and, and he hangs out with different circles than I hang out with. He hangs out with his crowd, but I go with them because I, I enjoy being with my dad. And, and so anyway, now when we go someplace, my dad says, hey, you wouldn't believe this. My, my son does up cervical, and this is what happened. He couldn't do that. He'll, <laughs> he recounts the story and tells them how, you know, how powerful that upper cervical adjustment was. Uh, because he thought, you know, thought happened. Now I, I have to ask this: uh, between uh, early July and this was the end of August, right? Yes, that's right. You had been adjusted in that time, correct? Uh, I had been, yes, I had been adjusted in uh, the middle of July. I got adjusted. Now, but by the first of August or the probably second week of August, uh, first week of August. I began developing a really bad back pain. But the reason why that had happened is because that's when the spinal cord began swelling. Hmm. Now, I think what had happened, and I think how this happened, was in early July, in early July, and I'm sorry, I'm just backing up all over the place, but uh, June, late June of 2007, I got adjusted, and I started feeling better. And as a matter of fact, I thought, okay, this is over now. I'm fine. I don't have any problems. So uh, I have some apartment, and I had a apartment that flooded, so I was pulling up carpet that, uh, for the flooding. This is just like a week after me being so sick. Mm. So I'm pulling up that carpet. Now, looking back, what had happened was when I was pulling up that carpet, I aggravated the spinal cord, and it began to swell. So when I got adjusted in the middle of July, which is actually about the 12th, 13th, 14th of July, somewhere around there, when I got adjusted then, it held in check the calcium levels, and it also held in check the swelling, but after about two weeks, it began coming back on again. Mm. And so then that swelling just went crazy, and I had another episode of a doctor that was not, Dr. Mike Anderson, uh, adjust me uh, in the first part of August, or maybe the first or second week of August, but uh, just simply couldn't get adjusted because my neck wouldn't, my neck wouldn't move in the HF position, that's, that's, a, that's problematic. Wow. So, in my, so I couldn't get my neck to move, and so he attempted to adjust, but, um, uh, but, it, just didn't, but it just didn't happen. Okay. It just, didn't, it just wouldn't, it wouldn't, uh, wouldn't free up, and, and I'm not too sure if, if it, you know, it might have been, you know, it, did, it probably did me, uh, did me less good than, than if I had, had not have done that. But, mm-hmm. but, you know, we're trying, you know, we're trying to, trying to do something. Sure. And then uh, by the end of August, um, Dr. Mike Anderson uh, came up from uh, came up from Atlanta uh, to check me, and he adjusted me. My neck was still in the same position right there, but we pretty much just you know just just went through it. And, yeah, uh, yeah. So I did get adjusted in between, but it was, I had basically three adjustments through that episode: one late June, one up the middle part of July, and at the end of August. And then you know what? I got adjusted again in October of 2007, and that's the last adjustment I've had. Huh. I've been getting checked. I've had that. I've held that last adjustment for a little over a year and a half, and I've been getting checked. Believe you me, I've been getting checked. Yeah. So, so I'm I'm really excited about that. Yeah. And it's it's the holding of the adjustment that gets people well. It's right. Really, it's not the doing of the adjustment. Yeah. Well, how would you like people to describe your contribution to upper cervical chiropractic? Well. Uh, that right there is, I don't know that that's really my call to make. Uh, uh, we're just doing the best we can and, and trying to live out the things that we feel like we've been called to do. And sure. So um, that's, that's about all I can say about that. Yeah. Well, fair enough. Well, listen, Doc, if uh, doctors would like to contact you or get any, any more information about uh, your mission work or uh, whatever, how should they do that? Well, probably the best, most effective way is to email me. Uh, I'll give you the phone number first, and I'll give you the email. But you can do either one, but email is usually the most predictable. So the, the phone number is 573-334-0100. That's my basic office number, but we that's pretty much where we coordinate the missions and coordinate the seminars and coordinate everything. 
the uh, my email address is rkessinger7 at gmail.com, and that is r-k-e-s-s-i-n-g-e-r-7 at gmail.com. Well, listen, I really appreciate you doing this. This has been a great uh, conversation. Well, I appreciate you, the opportunity of, of, of doing this. Uh, I kind of got wrapped up in it. I forgot we were doing an interview. I thought we were just talking. So I... Here is a bonus tip for all upper cervical chiropractors. If you go to my website at www.uppercervicaldocs.com forward slash blog and you click on the button that says upper cervical marketing and then scroll down until you see the entry titled five fun ways to get more patients from the web uh, and uh, read that entry I have a slideshow on there that will show you five things that you can do with the web to get more patients that don't even require you having a website if you have a website, this will just help you get more traffic, but you can do these things uh, to get more patients even if you don't have a website. And uh, just go have a look at it. Again, it's at UpperCervicalDocs.com slash blog under the Upper Cervical Marketing heading, and the title of it is Five Fun Ways to Get More Patients from the Web.